Last weekend, several of our people from ZPC were on a Kairos weekend. And most of you know that Kairos is 72 hours in a prison, three days within a prison, uh, and this was at, at Pendleton. And the people who were there had a, a great experience, I'm told. It's like a great banquet behind bars. And many times, and I've, I've been on a few of these weekends, many times it feels like you're almost having a front row seat to the book of Acts as you see God working in very, very special ways. The last Kairos that I took place, took part in, was in Northern Ireland. There in Northern Ireland, just outside of Belfast, I was a part of uh, a Kairos in a Magabry prison. And Magabry prison is uh, the, the maximum security prison for Northern Ireland. And always in, in Northern Ireland, you have an equal number of Catholics and Protestants, uh, since they're still dealing with the effects of, of uh, the uh, conflict, which they call the Troubles, uh, that's, that's what we do. And that way, uh, guys are amazed at the very beginning that uh, you would be working together. It just doesn't seem possible in their whole frame of reference. Well, one of the things that you do in a Kairos is that you call off the name of the participant and the names of the participants, they'll be outside and in, of the meeting room and, and they'll come in one by one and then a person will be designated to kind of serve as a sponsor for the weekend for that person. And to be a sponsor means simply that you go and greet the person and, and that you have the opportunity to uh, treat that person to a cup of coffee or tea. Tea was the bigger deal over there. And uh, then you have a chance to find out about families and get to know each other, and it kind of breaks the ice. Now, in some ways it makes us feel at home as much as it makes them feel at home. And uh, I remember that uh, my particular guy that I was supposed to sponsor didn't show up. Many times the guards there don't uh, cooperate very much, and so sometimes the guys aren't able to come. Well, I remember since my guy didn't show up, there was another guy who had two participants. And so the leader of the weekend said, will you take one of these? And he showed me the one. And this guy was a tall guy, probably about 6'2", dark-complected, dark hair, very handsome, lots of tattoos. And I remember as we sat down and started talking, we really hit it off. I mean, we hit it off to the point that I found out about his family, and, and uh, it seemed like things were going very well. Now, two questions that you never ask is, why are you here, and how long are you going to be here? But it was going well enough that I thought, I'm going to go a little deeper. We had a little time. So I said, how have the troubles impacted your family? He looks at me kind of shocked. He rolls his eyes, and then he looks over at me, and he says, you don't know who I am, do you? And I said, uh, no. And he said, well, if you want to find out, uh, just check me out on Google and you'll find several pages written about me. And then he said, uh, also, there's going to be uh, a large expose about me in the, the Belfast Sunday paper. Well, there was. And uh, come to find out, he was the leader of one of the, uh, the largest uh, paramilitary groups and one of the most violent paramilitary groups in all of Northern Ireland. Well, what was kind of interesting was after we were finished, as was our, always the custom, we got together with the team and we had a dinner together and kind of debriefed. And when it came around to me to debrief, I said, wow, you can't believe what happened. 
and I mentioned the guy's name, and they all roared in laughter. They said, you mean you didn't know who he was? Everyone in Northern Ireland knows his name. And so uh, it was uh, a time where I felt that uh, I was uh, just a little bit on uh, the wrong side of the ball there. Uh, the newspaper expose uh, the next weekend was a seven-page uh, uh, article about him, and it called him kind of a, a, a like a, he, they said he was like a mafia don. He was in charge of all the corruption in a particular part of Northern Ireland. He was uh, the kind of guy that, uh, that you really probably didn't want to hang around too much. Much like the man that I met in the Kairos weekend, the person who was, uh, sounds like a good car, doesn't it? Um, uh, the person who was the, that kind of mafia don, um, the person in today's passage was very similar to him. Now, maybe you don't get that as you read it, but when you find out uh, behind the scenes what happens, uh, Annas is very much like a mafia don. So as we continue to count down to the cross in John chapter 18, Today we're going to be seeing Jesus questioned. Please follow along with me as I read from John 18, verses 19 through 24. John 18, 19 through 24. You can follow along in your Bibles or your pew Bibles or on the screen. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, the high priest, and this is speaking here of Annas, questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong... Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. May God add his blessing, understanding, and application upon this the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please join me now in prayer. Good and gracious God, as we gather here today on this kind of dark and damp and dreary morning, it's good to worship you. And we thank you for each part of this service. And we pray as we now center our attention on this passage of Scripture, as we count down to the cross in John chapter 18, moving closer to the time that Jesus will give his life for our sins. God, we are grateful for what you have done. And now I pray that in the stillness of these moments, that in a way that is far beyond my doing, that you would speak to us. Speak to us by your spirit. Speak to the people and the preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. In an amazing juxtaposition or turnabout of justice, Annas, one of the worst criminals of Jesus' day, is representing the law, and he's questioning Jesus. Now, to begin to get an idea of what Annas was like, 
Listen to these words from a 19th century scholar, Alfred Edersheim. He says, no figure is better known in contemporary Jewish history than that of Annas. No person deemed more fortunate or successful, but none also more generally loathed and detested than the late high priest. Annas was a high priest in Israel from 6 AD to 15 AD. Four of his sons became the high priests. Not at the, and also at the time of the questioning, the high priest was Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law. Before the Romans ruled Israel, a high priest would held that office for life. But when the Romans came in, they were concerned that too much power would be centered there, and so they wanted a different person on a regular basis. Furthermore, the high priest under the Romans went to the highest bidder. Without question, the office became a matter of contention intrigue, bribery, and corruption. One of the reasons the high priest had so much power was it was the high priest who was the primary person who collaborated with the Romans. Not only did the high priest then live in comfort and ease, but he experienced great prestige and power. It all came from the bribes that he gave, and he had the opportunity to be in close cooperation and relationship with the ruling power. The family of Annas was immensely wealthy, but it was wealthy because of their racket. Always, Annas, like a mob family don, was the power behind the people. I can almost hear the theme from the Godfather being played in the background as we read this passage. As I mentioned last week, Anna's family wealth came from taking advantage of innocent people. If someone would come on one of the great holidays or any time to the temple and want to offer a sacrifice, there would be someone on the inside, an inspector, who would inspect their sacrifice and they would deem it not up to standards and so they could not use it. But guess what? We've got another one right here. Now the one that's right here would cost as much as four times the regular price. And so they had a chance to rip off the people. In fact, in a derogatory way, those places where you could find uh, or you, where you could buy another sacrifice were called the bazaars of Annas. Maybe the closest thing we have to that today is an event like a Super Bowl. You, know, you pay a high price to get in, but once you get in, you know that uh, the food and, and the drink and everything there is much more than usual. The only difference is that was done in the name of organized religion. It was that blatant ripping off of the people that in, incited Jesus when he came to the temple. It was that that caused Jesus to, to change, to move out and, and, and push out with, even with a, with a, a whip the money changers, to turn over their tables. And of course, when that happened, Annas and his men saw the dollar signs seeping away. They could not let him get away with it. Jesus had to be snuffed out. With that said, can you imagine the scene presented in the passage that I read a few minutes ago? Here was the Son of God, the Messiah, God's anointed one, the righteous one, 
being interrogated by one of the worst scoundrels of Jewish history. As we scratch our heads in amazement, it's plain to see that the law isn't even a factor here. This is an outright mockery of justice. To explain what I'm talking about, an alleged criminal or perpetrator could, be asked, could not be asked a question which would incriminate him. Witnesses, and it had, there had to be a minimum of two, witnesses had to be brought in to make the case against that individual. And to go a step further, Maimonides, a great Jewish medieval scholar, wrote, our true law does not inflict the death penalty upon a sinner by his own confession. No question about it. Annas questioning Jesus is a gross lack of justice. It just wasn't fair. How about you? Have you ever felt that some of the situations or the things that went on in your life just aren't fair? Maybe you feel that you're not getting justice. And what about the magnitude of corruption or injustice that is so large that you feel, what can I do about it? It's out of my control. Friends, if you have these questions, Jesus understands your questioning, your frustrations, your utter dismay. He knows because he allowed himself to be questioned by Annas. Now, Annas is willing to do whatever it takes to gain evidence against Jesus. Verse 19 tells us that Annas' illegal questioning of Jesus began with two specific issues. The first had to do with the people who followed Jesus, specifically the ones who were a part of his inner circle over the past three years of his ministry. This was a crucial issue because of Jesus' enormous popularity. His popularity not only threatened the well-oiled machine of Annas and this corruption, but also the whole religious institution. If Jesus somehow was not stopped, everything could come tumbling down. On the Sunday before, which was Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered the Jerusalem with great fanfare and the sound of hosannas ringing in his ears, in John chapter 12, verse 19, the Pharisees were saying to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. There's a sense of utter despair by the leaders. Annas has probably had his legal team comb the law and try to find out uh, what they can find to use against Jesus and his disciples. And they find probably something like Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 10. And on the basis of that indictment, Jesus and his uh, uh, disciples would be called false prophets. They'd led the people astray. And if they could do that, then he was worthy of death. Now, please remember that Annas, the one who is supposedly the kind of judge here, is breaking the Jewish law by asking Jesus to testify against himself. He is clearly desperate and willing to do whatever it takes to bring Jesus down. When we understand what Annas was doing, Jesus' testimony or response to him makes even more sense. Jesus tells Annas that his ministry has been done in public 
meaning that there are many witnesses that he should call upon. Jesus knows that Annas should not be questioning him in such a way that he will incriminate himself. He makes it very clear that his whole ministry has been right out there in the public, right out there in open. In fact, much of his teaching has taken place in the synagogues, in the temple. It's where any good Jew would go for learning and for worship. Nothing has been spoken in secret. Everything has been in the open. And it's public record. Certainly, it would be not be difficult at all to find two witnesses to speak about what has taken place. Then Jesus boldly, and get this now, if you think Jesus is meek and mild, Jesus boldly speaks to Annas when he asks him the question, why do you ask me? He knows he's going across the law there. In essence, Jesus is saying, don't you realize it's not legal for you to ask me a question like that? You should ask those who have heard me. There's no question about what I taught. Annas must have been enraged when Jesus said that. He hadn't had people talk to him like that for a long time. One of Annas's henchmen, maybe at a cue from Annas, took Jesus' words as being completely disrespectful to the high priest, and he slaps Jesus across the face. Is this the way you're going to answer the high priest? It's a kind of, and, and then as a kind of, and get this, non-anxious presence in the midst of building chaos, Jesus said, if I said something wrong, then testify that it's wrong. Let's stick to the subject. Prove me wrong. Yet Jesus goes on to say, but if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Well, we don't know exactly what happened at this point. I imagine Annas is so angry that he can hardly control himself, and he's afraid that he's going to lose control. If he lose, con loses control and does something at this point that would hurt Jesus, there could be a riot. And if there was a riot, he could lose all of his power. So he sends Jesus to the current high priest. He passes him off to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And even though he didn't gain any further uh, information or evidence against Jesus, make no mistake about it. For all kinds of reasons now, Jesus must be executed. No one speaks to Annas like that. In one way or another, Jesus must die. As you think about that early morning interchange with Annas, the one who is the power broker, and all of the anxiety, have you ever been in similar situations? Now you say, oh, nothing quite like that, maybe. But maybe people were distraught and, and difficult words were spoken around you, words that couldn't be taken back once they came out. Those kinds of scenes are certainly disarming, and they leave us feeling useless and powerless. Oh, dear friends, the same Jesus who knows what it's like to be in a really tense situation with his life on the line promises that he can help you to be a less anxious presence and to keep your cool even in a situation like that. Through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, he can help you and me to be peacemakers, bringing reconciliation even in the most difficult situations. 
your constructive actions and your soothing words, spoken boldly like Jesus did, can be a gift to everyone who's involved. I must say that I haven't always been a very good person at dealing with conflict and have sometimes really gotten hooked, particularly if I'm caught off guard and I'm not expecting it, or if the issue at hand is one that, I, that my passion is wrapped around and sometimes I'm concerned so much about my agenda that I believe that at those kinds of times I've caused more dissension and dis-ease than I've been a help. Afterwards, when I've blown my cool in a situation like that that's anxiety-filled, I feel crummy. I feel crummy about myself. I feel crummy about the way that I missed an opportunity to be like Jesus. And I come to the realization that I blend into the world around me, a world that is filled with entitlement and privilege when I become anxious because things aren't going my way. However, there have been times when I've stood back in grateful awe, when I've seen Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit work through me or work through others. And when that happens, we become catalyst for peace. Rather than feeling crummy about ourselves afterwards, we feel very small and humble when we realize that we've been privileged to let Jesus, the Prince of Peace, shine through us. It's the same Jesus who was questioned before Annas in an unbelievable juxtaposition of justice. Dear friends, we're living in a world where there is so much that seems unfair and unjust. If we took the time right here today and I said, what seems the most unfair in your life? What seems the most unjust in the situation where you find yourself? We'd get all kinds of answers. Far too often it's, we find that it's wrapped around things that are out of our control. And we feel a deep sense of anxiety. What can I do about it? Think of all those people south of us who are still suffering mightily after the devastating tornado which hit two weeks ago. Humanly speaking, it's tough to make sense out of a whole family, five young people being taken, their lives snuffed out, and so many people injured, many of whom are still homeless, losing all their worldly possessions. I was in the flood in 1993 in St. Louis, and to see people lose some of their possessions that could never be given back, like uh, pictures. I remember one woman, as we were helping her, uh, after the flood, had a doll set that she'd had from the time that she was a child and it was completely destroyed. Or mementos or, or gifts that children had made for them and were very special to them. Or wedding pictures or pictures of people who were no longer here on this earth. While things are beginning to look up in the lingering effects of the deepest recession since the Great Depression, it's still taking its toll, and people are fighting for survival as they look for employment. In this election year, we are all too aware of the partisan stalemate, which makes us question the sincerity of our political leaders. When it comes to morality and ethics, it feels like the landscape has and is changing in our country. It seems like the Bible which was long our standard for determining the morality of an issue or an act, 
on the basis of making our decision has become more of a history book, telling us how the Judeo-Christian ethic came about, but not the primary authority anymore for living our lives. Let me cite a case in point. A little over a year ago, I received an email about a book that was coming out for children. It was called Conversations with God, and at the time it was being distributed to schools and children by the Scholastic Book Club. Listen to two of the questions and answers found in this book. A question to God. I am living with my boyfriend. My parents say that I should marry him because I'm living in sin. Should I marry him? Answer from God. Who are you sinning against? Not me, because you're doing nothing wrong. A question comes to God about God's forgiveness. Answer from God. I do not forgive anyone because there is nothing to forgive. There is no such thing as right and wrong. That's the world in which we're living today. Probably each one of us can fill in some blanks about situations in our lives which cause us to be anxious and feel helpless to change things around us. Well, dear friends, as we continue to count down to the cross and continue to unpack the character and nature of Jesus, please know that the same Jesus understands and cares about you, about your situation, about your frustration, about your anxiety, about your sense of hopelessness. You matter to Jesus. He proves that by loving you even when you may have turned your back on him. He wants to bring you forgiveness for your past. This Jesus wants to bring you peace, joy, and meaning in the present. He wants to bring you hope, even in a times that seem hopeless in the world in which we live. But more than that, Jesus wants you and me to be heralds of hope, catalysts for transformation and justice, makers of peace and reconciliation in the world in which seems so unfair and seems sometimes impossible. Be very certain, Jesus, who stood up to the ruthless Annas, can help you through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to be an agent of change and reformation where you live in your world. In John 14, 12, we are promised that through the power of the Spirit, we will be able to do not only the things which Jesus did while he was here on this earth, but also greater than these things. Are you willing to ask God to use you to make a difference in some of the areas that seem impossible in your life? In the same vein, as a church, I believe that rather than sitting back and bemoaning the fact that life around us is changing at an alarming rate in, our, in an unfathomable way for some of us, we need to be saying, God, help us to be the answer to our prayers and the prayers of others. Use us to be your people doing your work in our world. Help us believe that when you are empowering us, nothing, nothing, nothing is impossible.
If after we leave today, you would like to pray with someone as you think about some of the things that we've said, there will be people over and by the cross on the, and that alcove over there where there's some chairs that are kind of turned around there and they would consider it a privilege to pray with you. Oh, dear friends, may God bless you. And most especially, may God make you a blessing to the world around us this week. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for the privilege of knowing you. And we're grateful for the privilege of seeing Jesus at work in this passage. And we're grateful that even though he was in an unbelievable situation where your righteous son was standing before one of the most hideous people of his day and being put down, he could be a non-anxious presence. He could be a person who could boldly answer forthrightly. God, help us as we live in the world where we live day in and day out to do the same. By the power of your spirit, may we be heralds of hope. May people see you living through us. I pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, with praise and gratitude and thanksgiving. Amen.